When I was growing up, I knew practically nothing about Jesus other than what I saw at the Catholic school down the street. Every Easter, they put up a poster of Jesus on the cross, and it said, He died for your sins. I had no idea what that meant. Many years later, a friend was showing me messianic prophecies in my own bat mitzvah Bible. And when I read what Isaiah said about the suffering servant, that he died for the sins of his people, that's when the light went on. Isaiah had a lot to say about our Messiah. In chapter 40, God said that there is a voice of one calling in the wilderness, saying that a path would be made for the Lord, that his glory would be revealed and all people would see his glory together. God promised that the Messiah would come to save us. In the New Testament, John the Baptist is the voice in the wilderness who recognized Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus saved us through his perfect sacrifice. God always keeps his promises. And when the time came, she gave birth to a son, her firstborn, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and lay him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly with the angel there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts singing together glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. And then when the angels had gone away back into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let us go together and see this thing that has happened. What an amazing scene in Scripture. One of my favorite things to ask in a small group setting is if you could have witnessed any moment in biblical history, what would you choose? Let's see if I've got that question up for us. And I've asked this question in a number of different settings, and I get some great answers. I had one person say, I would have loved to have been standing there as an invisible bystander when Moses parted the Red Sea. And I've had another person say, I would have loved to have seen the transfiguration of Jesus. And another person said, what I really want is to have sat in the tomb on Easter morning to see exactly what happened. I thought that was a fantastic answer. This scene with the heavenly chorus stretched across the sky from horizon to horizon, that's number two on my list of things I would have liked to have seen as a, as a visitor, a bystander. Um, I, I just imagine walking the dog one night or out for an evening stroll and that unfolds above me. Wow. And my, my number three is Elijah versus the prophets of Baal, where after all the nonsense, Elijah prayed and God answered with a column of fire out of heaven that consumed the sacrifices and the water and everything and shamed all of the, the prophets of Baal. That's my number three. My number one moment in Scripture that I would have liked to have seen had it been given to me to see would have been an underrated moment. It's in Luke chapter 4. It starts about verse 16. And Jesus walks into the synagogue on the morning in his hometown, 
uh, and, and it was his habit to attend. And the great scroll of Isaiah was given to him. And Jesus unrolled that scroll and found the place where it was written, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and said to the congregation, today, that scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. My favorite moment in scripture. Prophecy that began in Genesis with the covenant that God made with Abraham and continues through Numbers and Psalms and Hosea and Michael and Zechariah and especially Isaiah, all of those forward-looking descriptions of the Messiah have all come to pass in that one moment. And Jesus basically said to everyone, today in your hearing, that scripture has been fulfilled. It is without a doubt the single greatest mic drop moment in human history. And I would have loved to have been sitting on the back row in the corner of that synagogue on that particular day. Luke's narrative says, and they were amazed by his words. Also an understatement. I'll bet they were. Wow. This morning, we continue in our series, Promises Kept. It's the focus on Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture, of all of those ancient prophecies that that culminate in in Isaiah. Uh, My name is Alan Tolliver. I serve as your executive pastor here at DBC, and it's a privilege to be speaking while pastor is at Breckenridge uh, on a ski trip. (laughs) He's also watching this morning to make sure things go well. So, pastor, we have not broken the church in your absence. The first two sermons in our series come from Isaiah chapter 11 and then chapter 7. Pastor Jackson proposed this analogy of a mountain range when we try to understand the the meaning of prophecy. Uh, And I want to work with that idea this morning. When you see a range of mountains off in the distance, it's not very impressive. In fact, sometimes it'll even look like a single mountain, but as as you travel towards it, it gets bigger, grander, and you can see more of the details. Um, I don't know if you've ever driven west across the United States, you go through Kansas, um, and then you get into eastern Colorado, and then all of a sudden there's this little blip on the horizon, and as you get closer, you realize you're looking at a massive range of mountains. Prophecy sort of works that same way. Um, By the time you get to the first couple of hills, you realize that there's so much more off and, and up into the distance, and that's a particularly helpful analogy when we start talking about Isaiah, and particularly the first 39 chapters, because that has a different feel than the second half of Isaiah, which begins at chapter 40. In the first part of Isaiah, there's historical notes, and there's, there's things that we can reconcile with the historical record. Uh, a king of Samaria did this. A king of Assyria did that. There was an attack on Jerusalem. God stepped in. Uh, we can find all of those redemptive moments there, and we can assess the quality, if you will, of Isaiah's prophecy, which was pretty good. 
Um, but Isaiah 1 to 39 tends to be a little nearer term, a little more specific, a little more direct. When we move into the second part of Isaiah, we begin to talk about things that are further out on the horizon, more distant, uh, further up, so to speak. And here's why I mention this. In the first two sermons, we talked about some of the things that Judah was doing wrong, and specifically they were engaged in dirty politics, double dealing between Assyria and Egypt, and generally just engaged in all kinds of wicked behavior. Jerusalem narrowly avoided capture because God relented at the last moment. And it bears repeating that Isaiah kept warning the people that stuff would happen if they didn't change their ways. And so Isaiah 1 to 39 is a whole string of prophetic warnings about what will happen if there's not a change. Specifically, turn back to God, restore authentic worship, stop playing political games, renounce evil, restore righteousness, and they didn't. And so Isaiah chapter 29 captures the condemnation on Jerusalem. God said, I will camp around you. I will besiege you with earth ramps and siege towers. <clears throat> you will be brought down, and your speech will whisper from the dust. In due time, Babylon conquered Assyria and set their sights on Jerusalem, and this prophecy played out verbatim. It was during the ruling of King Jehoiakim who agreed to pay King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon an annual tribute. But instead of paying the tribute as promised, he cut the money in half, he put half in his pocket, and he used the other half to pay Egypt some protection money on the hope that Egypt would come and defend them if Babylon didn't like this deal. Babylon didn't like that deal. Nebuchadnezzar decided that wasn't going to work, and so he came to collect in person, and he brought an army with him just to make sure that there wasn't any confusion about how this was going to go. Meantime, Egypt gets a bad case of amnesia, and King Jehoiakim decided to lock the gates of Jerusalem and wait for Nebuchadnezzar to give up. That just made him mad. It took 30 months, but eventually the Babylonian army came pouring through the walls of Jerusalem. Walls battered down, gates burned, Solomon's temple was looted, and then it was reduced to rubble. And the survivors were rounded up and marched off into captivity in Babylon. Uh, James Tissett did this painting about 100 years ago. And it just tries to capture the spirit of brokenness, this sense of the loss of the home, the ruin of the city, and the beginning of a very, very long walk across the desert into captivity. The fall of Jerusalem marked this period that we call the exile, and you may have heard that term before. We can only imagine what it was like for the survivors as they turned their backs on their homes in ruins and started walking off across the desert into captivity. None of us are actually going to experience exile quite like that, but I'll bet you've been through a time of brokenness and despair. Maybe some season when you were far from God, maybe you went through some tough stuff at work, maybe you walked through the valley of the shadow of broken relationships, or navigated a really bad financial decision, or dealt with a major ethical failure, or you were in captivity to someone or something. Chapter 42, Isaiah calls out a few more things that lead to separation from God. Those who have eyes but have begun blind to the things of God, 
those who have ears but are deaf to the things of God. And you'll notice that I'm talking about things that can happen to you, not, not things that happen to you like illness or death or a loss of a job. I'm talking about personal exile here. I'm talking about the messes of your own making. In another sermon series, Pastor introduced this idea called suffering for a reason, and that's the situation that I'm, I'm trying to address here. The people of Israel were in exile because of the stuff, specifically the stuff that they did that dishonored God. And when God sent prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah to correct the people, they either didn't listen or treated the prophets very badly. There might be 2,700 years between the Babylonian exile and Dunwoody, but we haven't made a lot of progress in some areas. But we can split atoms. We can splice DNA. We've got a telescope that can see back in time. And we've got an SUV running around on Mars at the moment. But we aren't doing a whole lot better at living in right relationship with each other and with God. And I'm not suggesting that we're going to be put in chains and march to Canada, but we are willing to go down paths that take us away from God. That's how we end up in our own personal exile, alone, apart, hurting, desperate, broken. And it's easy to suggest that we're not doing the stuff that Israel did in this time period, like worshiping false idols or engaged in dirty games with money and power and politics or tolerating injustice or engaged in evil or permitting vulgarities and obscenities in our culture because those are the kinds of things that lead you to personal exile and separating you from God. And all of that brings us to another significant moment uh, in Scripture this morning. It's our text in Isaiah 40, which is in the first chapter of the second half of the book. Now, the exile that I described a little earlier basically occurred between Isaiah 39 and 40. So you got 39 chapters, then we have the exile, and then we have the next 40 chapters of Isaiah. And after a long silence, Isaiah offers a new word to the remnant of Judah. Follow along in the text, if you would. Isaiah 40, chapter 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These are the first prophetic words from the prophet Isaiah in a long period of time. And literally the first word the prophet says is comfort. Comfort meaning it's going to be okay. There's an end to the situation that you're in. And it's a huge moment there because you can't appreciate comfort until you've truly known sorrow. And this was a reminder to the people that the same God who allows exile also comes and restores us. And then in the next few words there, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce that her time of forced labor is over. We can only guess at how that was received, but it marked a dramatic turn in God's redemptive work. The time of discipline being over, God's people are entering a new season between promise and fulfillment. Yes, still in Babylon, but prepared to head home 
and released from bondage. And it's a beautiful picture of, of, of reconciliation and restoration. And then we come to this phrase, her iniquity has been pardoned. And it's another way of saying the debt has been forgiven. It's been wiped away, forgotten. The penalty of sin has been paid. And how's that for a prophetic word? Because that's foreshadowing the exact message of the Messiah. And then the text continues, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled, and the uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain. I like this image uh, that sort of suggests this rough terrain and, and, and a, a crooked path across the desert. Maybe some of you have seen it if you've ever been to the Holy Land. There's a lot of rough terrain east of Jerusalem. And the idea of a straight highway is sort of attractive. There's metaphorical language about celebrating God's arrival and imminent rescue. God doesn't need a road for Himself. This is about personal preparation, a herald of His arrival, a loving Father coming to bring the lost home. There's hints of the parable of the lost sheep from Luke 15. And then verse 5 continues, and the glory of the Lord will appear, and all of humanity will be together to see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. After years of captivity, imagine what an encouragement that must have been to the people of Israel. From words of forgiveness and comfort in verses 1 and 2, to the voice of preparation in verses 3 to 5. And then a reminder in verses 6 to 8 that our lives are short, but God's Word endures forever. And then we find this beautiful passage in verses 9 to 11, Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain, raise your voice loudly, and say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. And the text closes with a promise that He'll protect His flock like a shepherd and carry them in His arms. To the people living in the Babylonian exile, it would have been easy to imagine that God had abandoned them. They're surrounded by false idols. They're surrounded by pagan culture. They've got no home, no country, no leader, no identity, no place. And after years of silence, comfort, comfort my people. You know that God doesn't do anything by accident. Everything happens at the appointed time. And 600 years after Isaiah made this prophecy, a coarse man stood in the Judean wilderness crying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Yet another powerful moment in Scripture that would have been amazing to witness in person, John the Baptist standing there heralding the Messiah. In fact, it was such a significant event that all four Gospels captured that scene, and they specifically, intentionally mention that John the Baptist was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Promises kept. 
Exiles in a place of brokenness heard that the glory of the Lord would appear. They get this little glimpse of the Messiah way out on the horizon, like a little, like a little bump that's just a change in the landscape. And then shepherds who were watching their flocks by night, centuries later, heard the heavenly chorus spread across the sky, heralding His arrival. And they got to mark the very moment when the Messiah was born. And us, we get to live in light of promises kept, looking back to see how God moved, looking around to see how God is moving in the present and drawing people to Himself, and looking ahead with great anticipation. You know, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what's happened. It doesn't matter how far away you've drifted from God. There is nothing you can do that will make God love you any less than He already does. He came to save you. You need only claim Him as your Lord and Savior. And in the meantime, church, you've got a job to do. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Herald the good news. Say to everyone, here is your God. Tell the nations, our King has come to save us. Merry Christmas. For anybody that's trying to decide what this all means, or if you have some questions about who Jesus is, or maybe you're in your own little personal exile at the moment, or having a tough time, I'd like to talk to you this morning. I'm going to be in the lobby right after the service, and I'd like to chat about what's going on. Just speak to me or one of the other pastors. We'd like to pray with you, to offer you some encouragement, to tell you about Jesus, and to pray about what God's doing in your life these days. Would you like to join me in a word of prayer as we close? Heavenly Father, we thank You for coming and for the privilege of living in this time when we can see how all of the prophecy has lined up from then until now to reveal Yourself. We thank You for the gift of Your Son, Jesus, for the redemption that He has offered each of us, and for the promise of everlasting life for those who claim Him as their Lord and Savior. God, we pray that the words offered the meditations of our hearts, and the songs we've sung would be pleasing to you. We ask your blessings as we close. Amen.